This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and thank you for joining me as always. On the other side, Jeff Abercrombie. Jeff, welcome back. I've missed having you across the board. Hey, Paul. Um, definitely excited to be here with Matt, and um, we've got a, a great live episode going. Yeah, absolutely. So anybody who's joining us on YouTube, welcome. Obviously, the audio version of the podcast will be out uh, as usual tomorrow or the day after. But we are extremely excited to be joined. Jeff kind of alluded to it by special guest, Mr. Matt Walman. Matt, welcome back to the Saturday Sunday Football Podcast. We always enjoy having you here with us. Hey, fellas. Thanks so much for having me. And unlike Jeff, I think I'm happy to see you too, Paul. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, no, I know Jeff's joking around, but, uh, but no, I mean, this is always a fun show to be able to do, and it should be a, another good time for us to be able to talk about rookies with training camp around the corner here. Yeah, absolutely. And here at Saturday, Sunday, we kind of all of May, all of June and most of July, we kind of really digest all things that happened during the NFL draft, talking about landing spots, talking about fits, talking about fantasy value, dynasty value, all that stuff before we kind of turn the page and we were just talking off air, Matt and I about like, you know, I'm ready to start digging into the next wave of prospects. I have my list ready to start watching film probably as early as tomorrow and and get into it. But we really break down every facet of the previous class post draft rather than some sites just quickly move on, uh, you know, and talk about it for a week or two. We really kind of bring in a lot of analysts to pick their brains, get their opinion. I know we had you on pre-draft. We talked about a lot of players, but there were so many other players we didn't get a chance to talk about. Now we have homes and landing spots and draft capital to kind of attach to these guys. Uh, So we always enjoy having you on post-draft as well. Uh, So let's dig right into it. Let's start with the running backs. And let's not start at the top because everybody starts at the top. And where I want to start is, we know that a couple of years ago, James Robinson's rookie season, it was an extreme outlier. Rare do we see a UDFA prospect have that much of a major impact in year one because the depth chart opened up. He sees the opportunity. But I really do think this year there's some intriguing late round and UDFA running backs that really landed in interesting spots that if the opportunity arises, they might be able to seize a role in a backfield. And I'm talking about guys like Kenny Brooks, who who signed with the Eagles as the UDFA, Isaiah Pacheco, uh, who was drafted in the seventh round by Kansas City, Abram Smith, who was signed as a UDFA free agent uh, with New Orleans. Matt, can you share some thoughts on any of these guys? Do you have a favorite landing spot of these three that maybe there it's an ideal fit that you know scheme and fit matches their talent? Uh, and if the situation was to ever arise, like James Robinson had that a few years ago, one of these guys might be able to seize it. Obviously, I'm not, we're not trying to predict another James Robinson season because, like I said, that's an extreme outlier. But maybe somebody that could seize a role and be, and have a NFL role that is significant in their rookie year. Absolutely. I'll start with Kennedy Brooks. He's been a favorite of mine um, pretty much for the past two years. And when you look at Philadelphia's team, you realize that, you know, Sanders isn't all that very, you know, Miles Sanders isn't that very satisfied with what he's getting in town. 
um, in terms of the number of touches he's going to get, says it's the offense, which I think part of that's true. Part of it's the offense's reaction to Miles Sanders' play, which has been not as reliable in terms of you know, making the right decisions that you need to make on the field. He's a terrific athlete, but not a great technician or conceptual player in terms of decision-making at the running back position. Um, then you have Kenneth Gainwell, who, I mean, if, you know, if steroids were legal, maybe he could like, you know, maybe he could shoot up WWF style or and WWE style and like, uh, you know, become Tiki Barber. You know, but I think that would require him to have explosion to his game as well. And I just don't think he has enough explosion to his game to to really become the player that they seek. I think he's more of a scat back at best, um, unless he can figure out a way to grow some man weight, add some muscle and add some explosion to his game. Then you have Boston Scott, who I think is probably pound for pound their best running back on the roster um, in terms of what he can do. But they look at him as too, you know, they're going to see short and slow. You know, even though he has great burst, great change of direction speed, and great contact balance, you know, teams that draft people like Miles Sanders and fail, which is generally the case for a lot of teams, is that they see speed, 40 speed, and they think that's important, and they minimize processing skill. And where Boston Scott is strong, Miles Sanders is weak, Kenneth Gainwell is so-so, um, you know, and so that enter Kennedy Brooks into this equation. And while he's not the fastest guy, four five nine was faster than what some people thought he was going to run. He has good burst. He has unbelievable contact balance. And I think he understands how to read boxes pre-snap to set up what he's supposed to do within that blocking scheme, whether he should veer away from it or whether he should... um you know, make an adjustment based on what his pre-snap keys are. And he does that as well as any back in this class. I think he's a massively underrated running back who may, who I think is going to get a shot to impress in camp enough that they'll, that, you know, and with running backs, this is a very important thing to understand. And I think the 49ers said this best. You don't really know what you have in a running back, especially the late round guys that you draft as camp bodies or maybe special teams guys, you don't really know what you have until you put them in live action, not in scrimmages, but actual preseason games and real games, Um, especially real games because we saw with a guy like Tyson Williams last year who was a UDFA I liked a lot, and he ran with abandon for the two years that he got to play in scrimmages and preseason. As soon as the, the lights came on in the real season games, he started to play like he didn't want to lose control of the football and he was too careful. They criticized him for that. You could see that his game kind of from the first half of the Raiders game to the second half of that game, he went from running with confidence to don't lose the football, don't lose the football. And it was over for him in Baltimore pretty much within the span of about three to four weeks because he never got over that. So when you look at these players that we're all that we're going to talk about in more depth who are coming from a UDFA perspective or late round, you want to see them in action first because you can hear them in camp and you're going to hear about he seems to always make the right decision. Like Brooks isn't going to impress a ton in camp unless he breaks a number of long runs in these scrimmages where the the beat writer basically 
you know, in the middle of him recommending the Monte Crisco to somebody, suddenly turns around and sees a, a breeze pass by him and go, who was that? And somebody goes, that's Kennedy Brooks. And then the, the hive mind of the media will, will start to write up, oh, Kennedy Brooks had a good day, um, you know, because he did something that, you know, may not really matter in, in actual until you see the actual games. But in the actual games, if he gets the shot to see extended carries in, the, in an actual game, then you're going to see that pop off because that's when he's going to get his shot. So his best opportunity is with any of these guys we're about to talk about will have to come with either an injury, which will open the door. Like think Isaiah Crowell, another UDFA. And he's a guy I had, I had him ranked number one in my class in that class that year. Um, who was a UDFA who they were about to cut in Cleveland, but then Dion Lewis got hurt, who was their main guy that they were excited about along with the Towson kid um who you know and Isaiah Crowell suddenly had a good third quarter in the third preseason game and they had to start looking at him seriously and he wound up being you know a multi-year starter in the NFL who probably would have continued to be at least a strong committee player to this day if he didn't tear an Achilles so Brooks is that kind of player who you know I like right off the bat my second favorite guy is a Quandre White um, to me, White is one of those guys that he is the speed back. He does have that skill in space, but he also has underrated skills in terms of diagno- um, diagnostic decision skills. Um, he's just a little more up and down with it than a guy like Kennedy Brooks, who's just an absolute Frank Gore-like technician in this area, whereas White can be a little more prone to taking advantage of his athletic ability. But here's the thing. Eli Mitchell, they called him Drano in in San Francisco because he hit a hole so hard, which is the nice way of saying that he had a rocket strapped to his backside and no compass and and really not great footwork to to set things up. But in that offense in San Francisco, when you had George Kittle, when you had Kyle Juszczyk, you had um, Trent Williams, you don't need a a nuanced decision maker. You need a guy who's going to hit a hole hard and fast and immediately. And that's something that you can do with outside zone and with toss plays and gap plays, which is why Debo Samuel got as many touches as he did when people got hurt um, because they wanted speed. That's why Kyle Shanahan went with Tevin Coleman, who can't find his way, couldn't find his way around a hole in his first couple of years um, and brought him into San Francisco. Or Jarek McKinnon, who was never going to really replace Adrian Peterson. Fast guys that are flashy and do well in the the hit-the-scheme-hard type of thing. Well, Saquandre White can do that right now, even if he has more room to develop, and he can catch the ball well. And he's a guy that has more explosion than anybody on that roster but Raheem Mostert. Um, and he's impressed in camp. I would not be shocked at all if they're like, let's give him a look in some of these preseason games enough, and he turns it in. They might cut Miles Gaskin. They might cut some of these other players that are like proven but just don't have great speed. Um, and you know, and then probably the third guy that really comes to mind for me is Isaiah Pacheco. And and I and I love that you mentioned him. He, you know, Clyde Edwards Hilaire. You know, he has bursts. He doesn't have great speed. His contact balance isn't great between the tackles. Um, 
you know, he's a bully in the open field who can catch the football and run routes. You know, you can talk about injuries all you want, but even in that Texans game, that first game where everyone went nuts and said he was great and he scored, you know, he didn't score a touchdown, but he had over 100 yards and they were saying he was the second coming to Brian Westbrook. I mean, I posted something on that just showing that's like the game was meh, you know, in terms of just like what he offers, um, you know, as a, you know, in terms of contact balance, decision-making in the red zone, tight creases, not a great runner for that. Ronald Jones is a good runner for that. He's, He's not a good receiver, as we all know, but he hits things hard. And he's a tackle breaker and one of the better yards after contact guys. Well, if you want a guy who has the com- potential to combine both of those skills into one player, it's Pacheco because he's a good gap player. He's got excellent speed. Um, he's a very good pass catcher, great hand-eye coordination, who I think can become a better route runner. And he kind of got knocked for Rutgers offensive line for some of the decisions that he made that I thought actually were good decisions that people said they weren't. Um, so if he can just hang on to getting a roster spot for that team um, ahead of Jarek McKinnon, you know, ahead of um, anybody that they have at the end of that roster and he can hang on for a spot, Andy Reed will gradually work him into the lineup because Andy Reed does that with a lot of backs who are, you know, late round guys. He's done it with Derek Gore. He's done it with, um, you know, Damian Williams. He did it with Spencer Ware. Um, and Isaiah Pacheco has enough skills that he reminds me of kind of a, you know, a uh, a Cam Akers type of back when Cam Akers was healthy. And I'd even keep an eye on Jerry Neely there just because he can catch. He's a smart runner. He's a good route runner. And he fits in that, kind of vein of what Andy Reid looks for in a guy, and he can return punts for you, so he fits that special teams vibe. So those are the three backs that really you know, caught my eye. Yeah, I, I, thanks for elaborating so well on that, too, because I was going to you know, ask you to follow up on that, on what the landscape might look like in, in two or three years, and I think you really painted a great picture that you know, in Philadelphia, for example, they had a guy like Jordan Howard through his rookie contract, right? And, um, you know, and I think Kennedy Brooks can profile as a very technically sound player that can give them that, um, you know, for, you know, for his early career. Um, so maybe just, you know, since we've touched really well on on these below the radar guys, why don't we kind of like work our way up just a little bit more because, you know, with the NFL draft, with the positional value at running back, it seems that, you know, the end of day three or end of day two, early day three is really where the sweet spot is for, you know, finding backs that can fit a role in an offense. And so, you know, we're seeing teams like Washington, you know, pick Brian Robinson and fill him in into a committee role with, you know, around Gibson, around McKissick. You know, we see uh, Kyle Shanahan make the news saying they want to use a committee approach in San Francisco and drafted Tyrion Davis-Price in the third round. You know, Isaiah Spiller came off, uh, Samir White came off. You know, those all, you know, again, it seems like the teams have a role in mind. It might not be, you know, the full workload that, you know, 
fantasy players might be looking for. But, you know, do you see that upside for any of those players? Do you have, you know, any specific thoughts or favorites or, you know, any really, you know, scheme fits that you see working really well there? Yeah, I would say the the guy that I think has the most upside um, for the least cost, um, because with this dynasty, all these guys you mentioned in dynasty to me, um, I would not get overly excited about because they're all in committee situations and we've seen committee upon committee in year before. It's not going to change, you know, unless an injury strikes and then they get to have that one year in the spotlight and then they're going to go back to a committee again in most cases with these. So to me, the player that has the most upside isn't even the ones mentioned here to the cost. And that's Jerome Ford with the Cleveland Browns. And that's because he's an elusive back. He holds up physically between the tackles. He has receiving skills and we know that Kareem Hunt and Dearness Johnson were basically, they're here for the year, but that's about it at best. They One or both might get traded um, at some point this year. Um, and Cleveland's going to want to recoup some of their picks, especially with everything that they've done moving forward. So when you look at Ford, he could replace Hunt in some capacity in 2023, He's one play away from earning a lead opportunity if he performs well for Cleveland this year. If they let Ernest, Job- Ernest Johnson walk, he could wind up being that, uh, even if it's a low-end version in terms of volume for of Kareem Hunt to Nick Chubb, it's still there. And if both those backs get hurt, and it is a punishing league, Jerome Ford just inherited one of the best three to four offensive lines in the league that's going to have to run the football. Um, so... For me, Jerome Ford is that guy that gives you the highest amount of upside for cost at this stage. And then talking about some of the guys that you mentioned, I mean, I think they're all mixed bag type of players for me. Like Isaiah Spiller's intriguing because, you know, if they have, if they look at Eckler and think he's too expensive to re-sign, you know, just due to age and everything else. And I, and I forgive me if they did already resign him. Did they already resign him? I don't think they did. I, I'll look I don't it up. Think I they, yeah. I think he I'll look it up. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's one of those things that even if it's even if they resign him, here, there's two things with that. Eckler is a bit of a shrimp for a running back. You know, he and they obviously drafted Spiller earlier because they failed on Kelly. They failed on Roundtree in terms of going late with those guys. So they decided to go a little bit earlier than the, than the guys they drafted the past two years in terms of, in terms of running backs who might be able to fit that bill, um, who could give you that Melvin Gordon to Austin Eckler kind of, um, you know, tandem. Maybe they want to do it as much as they did with Gordon, but they still want that element. And certainly Spiller is that guy who has the talent to reduce Eckler's role in the red zone and the ground game overall. He can be the closeout back. He can be the red zone guy. And he, if he plays well enough, um, then he could make Eckler too expensive to resign down the line or decide that they don't need him in as big of a role. So Spiller's the most intriguing to me. And also it's because the Chargers are a good team. You know, and 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 I think that they can run the ball. They have the potential to run the ball reasonably well. I like Robinson's ability a ton, but I also love Antonio Gibson's skills. Um, it's and you know the problem is is that when 
our dynasty community equates Antonio Gibson to the next Christian McCaffrey in terms of Christian McCaffrey's peak years, and it doesn't happen, they're all going to be disappointed. You, you know, so you can let the redraft players of dynasty go nuts over that and keep taking Antonio Gibson, if you ask me, in terms of he might be in a little bit of a bargain for you if you can get him. But Robinson, to me, he's fit in a three-headed backfield. And that's part of the problem is that, yeah, I like his physicality. I like that he can catch. Um, I, you know, I think he's a smart running back. Um, but do I think that Gibson could possibly shut the door on Robinson and then disappoint everybody who had their, their, their sight set high on Robinson? I think that can happen. And also with McKissick and what he does, it's just, there's just too many irons in the fire there with that backfield. And that's the same thing right now. When you look at Ty Davis price, you know, I like his skills. I was a little shocked at first when I saw how fast he ran. And then I went back and looked and I'm like, okay, it's there. I just didn't, it's hard to gauge speed sometimes. So I, I, I get it. Um, I think he's a, he has some real potential as a pass protector, but to me, I joke that like Kyle Shanahan is like, if you've ever watched, you know, the devil wears Prada, especially since both of you guys are married, I imagine that you have. <laughs> um, if you ever watched that, to me, Kyle Shanahan is Meryl Streep's character of the NFL. Like he is like, he is that type of person when it comes to personnel. Um, and I, you just never know. I mean, Brandon Ayuk's in the doghouse again. Kyle, I mean, George Kittle was in the doghouse. He said in his second, early in the second year. Trey, you know, Trey Sermon was in the doghouse before that. Dante Pettis was in the doghouse. It's just like nobody makes Kyle Shanahan happy. It's like Kyle Shanahan has this idea of what he wants, and it's like, well, what do you want? Do you want a great flanker or a great slot receiver? You know. Or, you know, do you want a guy who can like win in these different areas? And he's like, I want everything. And if I don't get it tomorrow, then I, I, I'd rather just pick, I'd just rather pick a yes man in Mohamed Sanu, you know, who's like a, a terrific football player overall in terms of being a veteran, but not a guy that everybody in the ro- on the roster in the locker room is going to go, that guy's an athletic stud again, you know, at this stage of his career. And he's going to be a difference maker where some of these guys who may not, do everything right that Kyle wanted on his video game scheme, you know, but actually can make plays, you know, that's the thing. So I look at a guy like um, Tyrion Davis price and I just wonder what's going to happen there. Like to me, it's like until Kyle Shanahan moves to another team or gets fired or, or whatever happens there. I'm, I just, I just pick up the cheapest guy who who possibly could take over if an injury strike and he just gets the volume. So for Dynasty, if you can get him in the late round, great. And you just hold on to him. But I wouldn't go nuts trying to hold on to him. In fact, as soon as he starts to pop, trade his ass because <laughs> that's basically that's the best deal. You're, you're going to get a recoup on investment and you don't know what's going to happen that next time. So, you know, for me... Davis Price is one of those guys. And then I would think, you know, Bam Knight. I like Zonovan Knight. Love his game. Hate the landing spot. Think it's awful just because the Jets, 
value runners with speed to attack the creases early and hard. They want these quick, fast guys. They want to be San Francisco East, but they don't have San Francisco's offensive line. So maybe Bam gets in there because all the other guys get banged up, getting hit in the backfield or blowing out, you know, knees because they've got to try and elude somebody, you know, basically in their lap by the time they're taking the exchange. And they need a guy who can actually hit a crease hard and just be focused and run through contact. And he's a very good, um, he's a very good route runner. Actually, he's he's an underrated route runner. Bam Knight to me, Bam Knight and Trey Sermon, the two guys who are just bad fits in their offenses overall. If the Pittsburgh Steelers need a running back, they need to they need to shop for these two and put them in their stable, and they will wind up with great um redundancy for Najee Harris um who could and either of those backs could deliver fantasy production for you if Najee Harris went down so if you're if you're I'm just saying if if you have either of those backs and you got them late or you got sermon early thanks to someone I know I don't know then uh <laughs> then um you, your best hope is to wait that he gets that they get cut and wind up at a team that's a better fit for them, and they could they could earn a better role. Yeah, and you bring up some really interesting points there. And you know, if San Francisco's out on Sermon as much as it might seem, he might be a guy that could be very readily had. They might say, "We'll take a seventh round pick, or we'll take a conditional sixth round pick, or something." Yeah. You know, if, if they're ready to move on, with obviously Elijah Mitchell and and Mostair and, and Jeff Wilson and Jordan Mason. Yeah, I mean, Jordan they, Mason is another one. I, I'm sorry. Can I just no, mention him real quick? Yeah. Out of Georgia Tech, he's a like 220. He can catch. He can pass protect. And he has more burst than you would think. He's a he is a skilled running back who I I they think he might make the roster. And I and if he does, he's going to make it over Trey Sermon because they're done with Trey Sermon. I think you're right. Yeah, and that means he probably could be had uh, uh, very much on the cheap. One guy that we didn't get a chance to talk about right there, and then this will be the last one for running back talk, is do you think Josh McDaniels and the New England people that are now running Vegas, do you think they look at a guy like Zamir White, who obviously right now Josh Jacobs, Kenyon Drake there, my guess is neither of those two are on their roster You know, by the start of the following season. Do you think they look at a guy like Zamir White and think that he could play a role similar to what they saw in New England last year with a guy like Ramondre Stevenson? Uh, do you see any similarities between a guy like Stevenson and Zamir White? I, I'm drawing a blank on where you were on Ramondre Stevenson last year. Sure. Uh, but maybe just talk a little bit about Zamir White and maybe if you think the Raiders envision him as being part of that backfield Maybe not this year, maybe a little bit here or there, but definitely more year two. It's such a tough situation because, you, you know, you hear Charles Robinson of Yahoo, who's the national sports writer, talk about how, well, it's going to be like New England, so just avert your eyes, you know. And then I think, well, Damian Harris was a top 10 back last year. <laughs> um, and... And a lot of that had to do with that you had a young back in Ramondre Stevenson, who I liked a lot coming out. I thought he was a terrific receiver. Reminded me of LeGarrette Blunt in a lot of ways. So, And I've always been a LeGarrette Blunt fan. So, you know, maybe not unbelievably quick twitch, but fast enough, good route runner, good pass protector, powerful, can run through you, but can also run around you a little bit. And 
but he still had things to learn. And then you look at the rest of that roster, and there wasn't much there at the running back position. I mean, Sony Michelle got traded, and you know, but they were like they were done with him because he's always banged up, you know. So they were they were kind of done with that. Well, you look at this team in in Las Vegas, and yeah, Kenyon Kenyon Drake could be good if you give him enough touches, um, and he's healthy enough. And you give him the right kind of touches. He's not a good all-around back still, um, you know, but he's a speedster who you can get into space. He does great. You can give him certain types of runs that simulate space, and he does well there too. Um, but then after that, you've got Brandon Bolden, who's there to basically transition the running back room to the to the offensive scheme and a great special teams guy and kind of a running back coach on the field for you. You've got Amir Abdullah, who is a good pass catcher, um, but never really turned into the runner that he could become, um, you know, and there's a guy that I really liked, but just really didn't really didn't work out. And he's not unbelievably explosive. So Zamir White, you look at White in the situation and I don't think he's Ramondre Stevenson and the fact that Stevenson is like a way better pass catcher at this stage of his career and a better pass protector, whereas White, is a try-hard guy in those areas, but not quite there. He has some things to learn. He might learn fast. He's also not, he plays, you know, you look at his tape and he and you think he's 220 the way he runs. But then when you find out that he's not even 210, I mean, I'm laughing because I'm joking. I've been working on trying to get in shape and I've gone from like, from Ramondre Stevenson Juco weight to like, to actually now like Reggie Bush, like pre-workout, you know, weight. Now I'm now I'm at Zamandra at at um Zamir White weight, which is like under 210, which means you don't qualify to be an every down back anymore. <laughs> so he's like you know, he's at that level, and and you just wonder how that's gonna translate to the NFL because it's not like he's running behind the NFL equivalent of Georgia's offensive line, and he's not and he, but he's still running behind the equivalent of like the SEC um, defenses he's facing. But now every week, and all the guys now playing at an NFL level. So I'm a little leery about the Zamir White love. I love that. He, I think he's a fan favorite of the media because he's quotable. He's a nice guy. He's known as a leader. And when you don't watch tape, but you actually you quote people a lot. You tend to glom on the guys like Zamir White because he's, you know, you he's because of all the things I just said. I think he can be a good player, but come on. I know that Josh Jacobs gets hurt a lot, but he's a good running back. So to me, Josh Jacobs is still Damian Harris in this offense. Just maybe you have to scale it back a little bit in terms of the TD department and the touch department because they're going to have to throw the ball a lot and they have the weapons to throw it. Um, unlike what's you know, unlike what Mac Jones had last year, which was a bunch of, you know, journeyman guys who can be pretty good, but, and then your run game um, with a decent offensive line. This is more like Tom Brady. This is more of the offense that Josh McDaniels had when he had Tom Brady. And here's the other thing about Josh McDaniels I want to add. Last time he he was a part of drafting um, running backs, I don't remember that working out so well. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have a good eye for it. But no, Sean Marino, I think, was one of the guys who was pretty good, but never quite like no Sean Marino 
you would have heard when you heard about Noshawn Marino and the way he played, the hype on him was like he was Saquon Barkley in terms of the hype they gave to him, you know, maybe without the speed element. But that's the thing. He wasn't quite as big as you thought he was going to be. He wasn't quite as um, electric as he could be. Um, and I'm trying to remember, I think Monty Ball might have been in that mix too, if I remember correctly. I know he played there, but I don't know if he was drafted or not. He might not have been year. drafted there, but he was there. I don't know. I just look at I look at those and I may be I may be stretching here and just like pinning too much blame on Josh McDaniel on some of these guys. But if if I'm right about that, that's a little that's a layer that's that would be one to keep an eye on. Again, it's a minor layer that may not mean anything, but it's still well, worth keeping on. I think, you know, one of the other things just to, you know, probably explain why people are more excited about Zamir White than, you know, even a guy like Brian Robinson, you see Zamir White going, you know, ahead of some of these wide receivers we're about to talk about, but you know, he was, he came in highly recruited in the Debbie darling. Right. And, you yeah. know, he, he lost a little bit of the luster after the, the ACLs and, but, um, but he's got that name. He's got Zeus, right. That's, that's his nickname. And, yeah. you know, that, that makes you think he's two forty as well. Right. But <laughs> Um, so I think, I think you've kind of got a little bit of a, well, I, I would say a perception issue, but maybe he's just got like a really great marketing team, right? <laughs> maybe, you know, and he is a good back. Like I like his downhill style. He's very smart in terms of how he picks creases. I think he can be a good pass protector, but again, you know, when I see, when I hear Zeus and then I see the size that he is, and he might be more Hercules than Zeus, you know, that still might be good, but you're a little underwhelmed and, you know, especially if you know your myths. So that's the way I look at it. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely got the Georgia boost, the SEC boost. He's got a lot of things there that, that are kind of pushing him up. And, you know, I think as we talked about a lot of these guys who went late day two, early day three, they can become functional role players at the NFL. And I think, yes. I think that's probably where they're ticketed. And I don't think, I think it's probably stretching to think that these guys are going to really materialize to focal points of an offense, you know, bell cows, even though that's kind of a dying word in the NFL right now, you know, like I I think that's, and and that kind of speaks of this, this class as, you know, we knew it was top heavy. We knew there was Brees Hall. We knew there was Kenneth Walker. And then I think it was kind of like, pick your next flavor that you happen to like. One person might like this guy, somebody else, you know, you could ask 10 different people and there might've been 10 different answers on the next guy or two that somebody, you know, personally, liked and and i think even now post-draft we're kind of still seeing it, it's very much you know these guys are going to have a role they could be functional players but their ceiling is somewhat capped somewhat limited they're not a guy who's probably not gonna they're probably not players who are going to force the hand a year from now in terms of nfl teams and decision makers saying we don't need somebody because we drafted this guy the year before in round four yeah no durable raheem mostert's you know, most likely. And, and if they, there's a few that it could happen to, but like, to me, the best shot is maybe Kennedy Brooks or Isaiah Pacheco or, or Zaquandre White. But again, the offenses they're in, you look at all those combinations and it's like, it's still unlikely. Yeah. And just to go back, we had talked about it before. Austin Eckler's only signed through 2023. So he's got this year and next year. And if they were to, for whatever reason, choose to move on from him, he only has a $1 million cap hit the following year. So the Chargers aren't committed, you know, 
this isn't like yeah. the Cowboys being stuck with Ezekiel Elliott, you know, last year, this year, maybe even another year after this, you know, the Chargers, you know, there's an opportunity there if Spiller was able to seize the moment or Eckler was to get hurt. And or he's, something. Our, he's our last example of that UDFA who's made good on that level. Yeah. 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 Eckler. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he, I mean, even if they do somehow, you know, waltz their way into this role, I mean, we looked at Michael Carter again, right? It's just more than likely not that they're, they are what they are. They they fit. They're really, I think they're very great NFL selections in that range as very talented backs that fit what coaches are looking for. They're going to fill a role that they have in mind, what they're going to ask them to do. And that's from a fantasy lens, not going to be the most valuable role. And even if they inherit, you know, Eckler gets cut, that doesn't mean you better look, you better be on the lookout that Spiller is going to have a running mate, right? I'm yeah, saying, for sure. Yeah. yeah, they're they're not going to look into him as being the only guy. So let's transition this over to wide receivers. And Matt, last time I was with you, it was opening night of the draft. I was joining you and Sig over at Football Guys. I think I was on for like the first eight or eight picks or so. And it was a lot of defensive players and offensive linemen. The minute I got off the air, it was wide receiver explosion for the next hour. Six wide receivers go off the board within the first 17 picks. Fast and furious after the, the early start there with the defensive players and the couple offensive linemen. And really, two-part question really with those first-round wide receivers. Is there one or two that you really like the fit landing spot opportunity that exists for them the way you you watch them play film and, and evaluate them in terms of their college film and what they could do at the next level and they're in the perfect spot and then the other first round question is when we had you on pre-draft you brought up some concerns or questions you had about Traylon Burks and him transitioning to the NFL do you think now him being in Tennessee probably a lot of pressure to replace AJ Brown which they traded on draft night as well how do you think he fits there on a team that very run heavy, very play action heavy? Do you think it's a good landing spot for Traylon Burks and maybe minimizes what they ask him to do early? Or do you still have concerns about that transition for Burks as well? Yeah, those are all great questions. I mean, the guy who jumps off to me and I talked about him with Russ Landy on my podcast last week was Chris Olave. I just, you know, he was my favorite receiver in this class. It was fun to hear that Russ felt the same way. We hadn't talked about it. We spent a lot of time talking about quarterbacks this during the off season, but we didn't even mention receivers. And um, so it was fun to hear him say the same thing, which is, I think he's the, one of the best route runners in this class. I think he can make an immediate impact. Obviously the longer Michael Thomas is having issues being able to get, um, get back into the swing of things, the more Olave might be a factor early. He reminds me of a guy like Chad Johnson in terms of that he can play inside-outside for you. He can probably play all three positions for you. He's a very smooth route runner, great tracker of the football, skilled after the catch in terms of just smarts. Um, so I, I think you know, two years ago our space overized, overanalyzed Justin Jefferson because he was joining the club of a run-oriented offense that had a top receiving option already in Adam Thielen. Um, I thought Jefferson was going to be the best fantasy play. And a year before that, I think it was a year before, it was A.J. Brown. And I thought A.J. Brown was going to be a great fit in Tennessee, but everybody was like, ground game, Corey Davis. You know, A.J. Brown's just a – a one-trick pony who was second banana to 
DK Metcalf when really it was kind of, you know, DK Metcalf's a little bit, you know, I like Metcalf, but he's a little less multidimensional than AJ Brown is. So, you know, you look at the scenario and I, I see Olave and he lands on a team with a fellow alum who is a go getter, hard driving football 24 seven and probably eating up the opportunity to want to get on the field. And if he can't, he's probably going to want to like be there to help his, his fellow alum along, you know, um, and Michael Thomas, you have one of the best locker room people in Jarvis Landry, who is also an unbelievably skilled zone receiver who runs great routes. And both those veterans are going to be there working with Chris Olave, who's already pretty darn polished. So if you're already polished enough that you can separate from defenders, you can run good routes, and you have those advanced skills, what else are you going to learn from these two guys? You're going to learn advanced concepts that often takes two to three years for some of these other receivers to even scratch the surface on. So to me, Olave has a really good chance. And with Jameis Winston, listen, Winston improved while he was there last year. Like the footwork that he worked on, it was notably better. Now, it didn't show up in the production department for him, and he got hurt, but he looked a lot better. He Some of the dumb mistakes that he often made because his feet were operating like two steps behind the rest of his body, um, and he always seemed out of alignment and was late with throws and off target with certain throws, and then he'd try and force situations. He wasn't doing that as often nearly as often as in New Orleans last year for the limited time he played. So I'm kind of low-key excited to see what Winston can do, and I think he's a bit of a sleeper this year. Um, So I think Alave can be that kind of Chris Godwin type of player, early Chris Godwin, maybe not peak Chris Godwin, but an early Chris Godwin kind of version to for Jameis Winston. He's got a similar player who can be that guy. So that's a guy that I love the fit. I think Christian Watson may not this year, but I'm a fan of what Watson can do. I'm a fan of that he has an understanding of the basics of a West Coast offense. He just has to have it ramped up more, learning to read coverages, pre-snap, post-snap type of stuff that you got to be on the same page with Aaron Rodgers. And you got and any top quarterback is demanding of that. You know, we always talk about Aaron Rodgers as if he's this diva who's awful person. And at least at least my buddy Sigmund Bloom does because he low-key hates Aaron Rodgers <laughs> and, and Russell Wilson and uh, these guys who are actually seem cool on the surface. And, you know, Bloom's one of these cool school kids, so he doesn't like the – he. I don't think he likes the competition, you know, as I bust on my buddy there. But, it, you know, you know, you look at – Peyton Manning and Peyton Manning used to ream Demarius Thomas from may he rest in peace a new one the first couple of years he was you know they were working together you know and and he was very demanding of 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 his receivers of where they need to be Watson is going to go through some of that but he's needed and he's and I think as long as he's mature enough to handle the experience I think by 2023 he can give you what Javon Walker was supposed to give the Green Bay Packers after that first season that was unbelievable for him. And then the rails fell off his game. And, and unfortunately some of the things in his personal life too. Um, so I like Watson, Alec Pierce, he gets a great opportunity with a veteran and Matt Ryan who may not be, you know, what the athletics Mike Sandoz quarterback tiers apparently rated him a tier three quarterback due to age, um, which is fine, whatever. Maybe that's what the execs think. Um, 
but Matt Ryan is going to win a playoff game this year when they get into the playoffs, and he's going to beat one of the teams with one of the tier one quarterbacks probably in it, either Buffalo or Kansas City, um, because they can run the football. Um, he may not be a great red zone quarterback, but he's great in the pocket, and they they make a great pocket in Indianapolis. Better one than what any of these other teams in the AFC have, uh, maybe outside of Cleveland. And and I would say Colts are better at it. And when you look at Michael Pittman, he's a good receiver, but is he the dynamic number one you put against the number one cornerback to get off press and win with moves or with physicality more off play action? So there's a little bit of a limitation to me in Michael Pittman's game. I think he's a very good receiver, but I don't see Michael Evans and even Mike, you know, Mike, I see him more as a, he runs a lot of overs and crossing routes and play action deep routes, but he's not like it's third and 17. We need you to run that deep comeback and beat that top corner and win. And I don't think he does that. I think Alec Pierce, I think has a little bit more opportunity as a result of that to be, to give you some of that skill in the deep game. Um, and, and some of the, and some of the, the vertical shots I think he has more of that. Whereas Pittman, I think, can be slightly better after the catch. Pierce is just as good at the catch point. And I think that they're trying to feed him to be able to run some routes that maybe Pittman is okay at, but not great at. But at the at the same time, is he a guy that's going to give you 700 to 900 yards or 11 or 1,000 to 1,200 yards? And I think he's more in that seven to 900-yard range for the next two years. It depends on Paris Campbell. If Paris Campbell takes off and plays as well as he in the real games as he is in practices, then Paris Campbell could be that Calvin Ridley type of player or the lead player in this offense, whereas Pierce and Pittman are kind of like, you know, none of these players, none of these Colts receivers strike me to be anything like the next Julio Jones or Roddy White. They're more Calvin Ridley depending on somebody else, and even then they're not 1,300-yard Calvin Ridley. Um, you know, they're more 800 to a thousand yard Calvin Ridley. So that, that those guys fit, you know, kind of suit me there. I love David Bell. I just don't think, I just think he's in the perfect situation for what that offense wants him to do. He's going to, he's going to give you like kind of a mix of Jarvis Landry and DeAndre Hopkins in that sense. But, you know, but he's, is he going to be 137 target, 1100 yard Jarvis Landry? Not this year. I think he's going to be more like 70, 60 to 80 target Jarvis Landry and 700 to 900 yards at best, depending on how well he meshes with Teddy, um, not with Teddy Bridgewater, with J- Jacoby Brissett um, and, and whatever mount we get out of uh, the Sean Watson. And then the, then you talk about Traylon Burks and, you know, you look at Burks, and I think it's, I think it's a good fit for him long term to be, you know, in terms of this offense. Um, I think it's a good fit, but there's a little, but there's some high risk reward with his game, and so, you know, right now when you look at this team, and let me see if I can kind of find what I was think, you know, some of my thoughts that I wanted to share because I had a couple of notes on on him that I thought were worthwhile. But, um, you know, I, I think the thing with Burks 
in terms of uh you know in terms of his skills he still needs to learn how to run zone routes better and that's where they're going to try and use him is in space or off play action so can he defeat press coverage not really not at this stage yet he's physical enough but he's just not skilled enough unless he learns fast he's not a He's not going to settle into open zones well for Ryan Tannehill um, as well as he needs to. That might improve too, but he caused a lot of – he forced his quarterback to run more often than they should have. Um, and the open spaces are not going to be as open. You know, I, I'm. I, it's nice that he outran the Alabama defense, but I'm sorry if you took the Alabama defense right now that played, that played last year. Even the guys who were in the NFL camp, put them together and put them against – you know, let, let's let's think of like the, the team that's in the worst shape right now, whatever that is, whatever team you think is the worst team in the NFL, and that Alabama defense is going to get 35 posted on them easy, okay? And I just think that that means that the worst linebackers in, in the flat or the worst safeties in the flat, Traylon Burks may get one out of every five of those opportunities for positive yards when they try and open him up in the space. And he might break one or two of them this year, but he's not going to be the guy that people look at on the college highlight tape. I think, you know, he's a player that when I look at him from a projection standpoint this year, I have Traylon Burks at about 584 yards, 70 targets, 42 catches, three touchdowns, and one touchdown rushing with like maybe close to 40 yards rushing on five attempts, you know, basically a combined 600, you know, 40, 650 yards, which is, I think is pretty good, but I just don't think it's, you know, we're not looking at Devonta Smith as like, you know, wide receiver two, wide receiver three territory for people this year. And there's a real bottom to his game where like they might have to, they might have to use them like Kelvin Benjamin, you know, was being used. But the difference being is that they might not be able to protect him as well. They might not have the caliber of quarterback, and they don't. And back in Kelvin Benjamin's day, you could throw fade routes and let him win those. Where fade routes don't win anymore in the NFL. That's that's gone the way of Kelvin Benjamin, you know, for that one year that he was really good. Um, and then the rest of the time he kind of got discovered. And I I wonder if Traylon Burks if he can't improve his game is just a faster Kelvin Benjamin. Yeah. I mean, one, one, I find it very fascinating too, because you know, one thing, you know, Paul talks about a lot, you know, being a big AJ Brown fan, you know, to begin with too, is that AJ Brown was an AJ Brown and he had to develop through that path. And, you know, as, as we say often development isn't linear, right. You know, AJ Brown hit that, hit the ground running. I personally think that, you know, if Traylon Burks is going to do that, I think he's got a little bit of time when you put in, you know, zone beaters like Robert Woods and Austin Hooper in there. Right. And what does a patient path for Tennessee look like to bring Traylon Burks along? I mean, very much schemed out looks, you know, even if that's, you know, certain jet sweeps and, and sort of ISO looks um, just to get him to beat those linebackers. Right. You know, you find that mismatch and you get him a couple targets a game. I don't think your projections are that crazy, but um, you know, it's you, you look around a bunch of other places and, and I think the only other person who, you know, 
people project a higher opportunity is is uh, Drake London. So maybe let's, um, you know, I think it's a very interesting note to leave Traylon Burks and, and kind of mull that over and, and maybe just kind of switch over to, you know, Drake London right now. And, and like, is his opportunity as good as we think it is as well? You know, 130 targets and a thousand yards or, um, or, or do we need to be a little bit more tempered as well with maybe a more conservative offense in Atlanta? I would be tempered with it just because um, do we really trust Marcus Mariota? And then Desmond Ritter to me is, um, you know, I just don't believe in his game. I just don't think he is an NFL um, starting quarterback. I don't think he's going to develop into one. I hope I'm proven wrong, but I, I don't see that happening. And the fact that Mariota is a good ways ahead of him is is telling. I look at Drake London in this offense, and I, I think you have an 1,100-yard receiver in Kyle Pitts, and then you look at London, and, and it's really going to be between London – Cordero Patterson and Brian Edwards as your like second, third, and fourth targets. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Patterson has upwards of 70 to 75 targets, you know, 52, maybe I'm at about 50 catches, close to 600 yards, about 11 yards per catch, six touchdowns. I look at London and I haven't been 85 targets, which I think is great for a rookie. But 130, yeah, I can't even imagine him getting that many. Um, you know, that's that's the idea of people going, looking at a spreadsheet and saying there's a void to fill, you know, and, and we need to fill that void. And it's kind of like, well, look at the Titans offense. Look at the quality of the in that and compared to Atlanta's offense when Arthur Smith was in, in play. And then look at also like the – the quality of the offensive line, which I don't think is all that great. I think Atlanta might be the worst team in the league. And when I, and when I look at at least the worst offense and the defense, I don't think is anything special by any stretch of the imagination either. So London, 85 targets, 50 catches, 700 yards, four touchdowns. That's kind of where I have him. I like his skills. Um, I, I think that he could be, a slightly better Michael Pittman at some point in his game in terms of what he does all around. Now, whether the fit and the team surrounding talent is good enough for London to be a better producer than Michael Pittman, I think that's the real question. Um, But to me, London and Brian Edwards, Edwards is a guy too that they may have to rely on enough that he, you know, that London and Edwards to me might combine for 140 to 150 targets, but I don't think that either one of them is going to generate that. I think Pitts is going to be your target leader with somewhere around 120, and then the rest of these guys are going to be splitting between 70 to 80 that I mentioned, and then you have like probably guys like Damier Bird and Auden Tate and Olamide Zacchaeus and Cameron Batson getting somewhere between 20 to 40 targets apiece in addition to maybe a Damian Williams, I think that this, uh, you know, to me, none of these guys scream, um, you know, first, especially first year with the quarterback that they have, none of them scream to me like mismatch against primary corners in this league. I like, have always liked Brian Edwards. And I think that there's a little bit more there for him to develop, but in this on this team in this environment with this these quarterbacks and coaching staff 
I'm not sold on that. Yeah, nine times out of ten, it's just the the answer is spread the you know spread them around, um, unless you you know just see some transcendent breakout coming. Um, but but that still posts thirty five on Alabama's defense. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, I mean Brian, if he played Alabama every week, Brian Edwards would be a sixteen hundred yard receiver at this stage. Uh, yeah, and and uh, and I think people you, you kind of said it best there with the when you're just trying to predict the game from a spreadsheet perspective and there's this giant void, you just it's easy to say, oh, the new guy, the first round pick, the top 10 pick, the top 15 pick, the top 20 pick, oh, just pencil him in for 15% of the targets. Like, but that's that's not taking into account just how hard the transition is you know, hence our name from Saturday to Sunday, you know, and I, and I do think sometimes it's very easy to fall into a trap when we do see transcendent talents, right? Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson, the inherent connection that even Tua had with Jalen Waddle last year playing together in college, you know, Jamar Chase playing with his quarterback, who's a high level quarterback in the NFL and Joe Burrow, like, just because they went out and put up these historic, not historic, but these, well, maybe Jamar Chase, but these elite numbers and elite target shares and opportunities, it doesn't mean the following year there's going to be another handful of rookies that automatically do that as well. 130 targets, 120 targets. I don't think anybody is mistakenly thinking that the top of this wide receiver year was at the same level as Jamar Chase. And, and, you know, so it's not at every year apples to apples comparison. And I think sometimes when we are just trying to look at when people are just filling out spreadsheets and percentages, it's easy to overinflate wide receiver numbers. And we have had some really great rookie wide receiver years lately, more than we used to have in the past. It's still, I think, dangerous to just start penciling in big numbers for rookies. And we're seeing that if you look around the industry, Draylon Burke, Drake London, you're seeing really high projections in year one. And I'm not sure either of those guys are guys who warrant that just based on where they went, like Matt was saying, and the development that is needed from some of these guys. Uh, you know, they're not very refined players in some aspects. So I, I think that tempered outlook is probably the safer way to play even though people want that initial explosion uh you know like jamar chase like Jalen waddle so it'll be interesting to kind of see the ebbs and flows and if these if this rookie class is a little bit on the downside does that change people's perspective next year in terms of what we think about those guys i think that's something to kind of follow closely and it kind of ties into transition over to quarterbacks because forever we have seen quarterbacks get pushed up the board, whether it's based on one singular trait, whether it's arm talent, whether it's athleticism or something. But this year, the only quarterback that got pushed into round one was Kenny Pickett. Do you think, Matt, that this is a one-year blip on the radar, people were down on this class, or do you think, is it possible that teams watching that game last year, Mahomes and Josh Allen and how good Joe Burrow was in the playoffs and how good Matt Stafford was, are teams going to start? Do we think this might be the start of them being smarter with their process of not pushing up quarterbacks that, that don't deserve to be pushed up? Or do you think it's just a one-year thing that this particular class, they were, there was more question marks than usual. Therefore they let them fall. 
I'll believe it when I see it <laughs> because I think it was the latter. I think that these this particular class had a lot of question marks to it. And so as a result of that, the the lack of certainty about any of these guys really pushed them down the boards. And and so um, you know, I'm glad to see it, but and this year, I mean, I have a fair I've probably watched about 30 running backs already, but um, I've only watched about four or five of the quarterbacks, and that was mostly from last year. Um, so I've got more of those guys to to watch, and I tend to like to watch them last. Um, but but from what I'm seeing, some of the holdovers that people are talking about, and some of the ones that I saw, I wasn't unbelievably impressed with either. So I'm I, I'm just waiting to see. You know, I've got a lot more to watch, but um, you know, obviously, if a, if some of the some some of the underclassmen come out, they might be interesting and might be worthwhile. But um, but yeah, I I that's probably the best way that I could put it is I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, I think it's probably the, the best perspective, right? Because I was with you on air when the Giants pushed up Daniel Jones, and we've seen you know if you go back even further, the, the draft class will uh, would ponder and lock it, and so many other Drew ones Locke that, and Baker yeah, Mayfield, exactly and Mitchell Trubisky, and yeah, the list. There's way more evidence on that side of teams pushing up guys than there is a teams playing it smart and realizing he's not the guy who's got minimal flaws that warrants going in the top 10 or top five or even in round one. And until we see more years of maybe what we just saw, I think that's probably the approach that next year, there's probably going to be teams that are really gung ho about trying to get their quarterback, especially if they passed on it this past year that we we're probably right back to teams pushing quarterbacks high up the board Uh, from the guys that fell. Is there any of those round three guys that intrigue you that you can say maybe in a couple of years one develops to be a average above average starting quarterback or do you kind of just see those guys probably settling as backups from that Desmond Ritter, Matt Corral, Malik Willis group who kind of all went there pretty close together to each other in round three. Do you think there's one from that group based on where they went that maybe they can become something down the line? Matt Corral. I like Matt Corral. I thought he, the, to me, the quarterback position, and I often hear, you know, I, I heard today there's a guy by the name of Honest NFL who's a former scout on Twitter, and I think he's a former Eagles scout, and he's a fun guy to listen to, and he certainly has, uh, you know, there's a lot of things he's talked about that I go you know, and I'm joking when I say this, but oh, does he read my blog? Because I've been <laughs> saying this for years. But it's like, obviously, he doesn't, and he's and he's learned stuff. You know, he's had his own conclusions from being a scout for a long time. Now, one of the things that he'll talk about is he gets tired of seeing scouting reports or 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 stuff that kind of nitpick players or nitpick what they can or can't do. And part of that is, I think there's two things with that. If I were, if I if if I look at it from the the thing that I believe, the 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 genuine kind of thing that I believe from him is that he's trying to show people explain to people how scouts do what scouts do in the NFL, which is 
you know, where players win. And you got to do that when you scout players. That's very important um, because no player is perfect and they're and finding the match. But the other thing that I would say that I would joke if the cynical side of me were to take over, the mean heel side of me would take over, would be like, well, you're also trying to, you're, you're also know that you're on social media and you might want a job again in the NFL. And you know that it's hard to get a job again in the NFL and you, you don't want to be a, uh, nitpicking players that teams have already drafted and saying bad things about them you want to def- you want to be defending you know all these teams on what they do so sometimes frame of reference is important and there may be a little bit of that there either way i mean i respect the guy for the work that he does i'm just saying that it's worthwhile kind of looking even if you look at it and say well that's maybe he's not doing that but the point of being is that when you look at a guy like um all these other players and you look at like corral um you, you know, he's someone that I think has the most skills that can that are hard to teach. He processes the game very fast. It doesn't mean he always makes the best decisions, but the decisions that he makes against pressure, off script, um, reading defense pre-snap, there's things he does that I think will be hard to teach the other players in in his peer group um, to do. And I think that. You know, I don't believe Baker Mayfield's going to succeed. I don't believe Sam Darnold is going to succeed. So when the when the dust settles, when those two um, fail out, I think you're going to see Matt Corral get his opportunity as long as he proves that he's a worker um, and and works at his craft. To me, he you know there's more upside to his game. Um, and you know, you look at Malik Willis; he has the highest upside but he's also the guy that has the most to learn. And I think he'll benefit from packages and you may get the, the modern day version of Cord, um, Cordell Stewart kind of work with him, the way the Steelers used Cordell, their Stu, Cordell Stewart way back in the day. You might get a little bit of that with Malik Willis early on in his career and then hope that, that he can become an every down quarterback. And maybe that'll happen for him. He seems to be a great kid. Um, but I think that there's, there's, it's hard to project him on the skills level as a passer and a decision maker in the way that I can with Corral. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I, I, I'll say when I watch Corral, I thought there were glimpses, glimpses, not the same, but I thought there were glimpses of some Tony Romo in his game and just in terms of certain styles, certain ways he played the game the way he was able to make some things happen, you know, and he was, he was one of my favorite quarterbacks in this class. And, you know, it's going to be interesting there. And obviously I, I, Baker's going to get the opportunity this year, but Darnold's going to be gone after this year. Baker, you know, if he doesn't succeed this year, he's going to be gone. It's going to be a whole new regime, probably a whole new coaching staff. You know, GM might survive. And they might but, just draft somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. And they might bring someone else in, but Corral is a guy who, who, I'm interested in kind of seeing his his development and see if he's willing to, like you said, work at that craft, right? There's been some questions about some things that, again, we really are, are not privy to knowing, you know, some of the inside stuff that goes on in terms of interviewing coaches and what goes on inside meetings and stuff like that. But I do like the, the skill set of, of Corral. He intrigues me a lot. From that group, I, I do think it's funny that some of these guys fell to where they did fall when we see other guys 
who have went higher than them, even la even last year, right? If you just talk about traits like Kyle Trask and Kellen Mond went higher than some of these guys like Corral, it, it seems like it was a little bit of an overcorrection, which was kind of interesting to kind of see that uh, happen. So it's going to be interesting to kind of see if this quarterback class, and I have my reservations about Kenny Pickett and, and how good he's going to be in Pittsburgh. And, you know, we'll see how quickly he gets on the football field. Uh, I know we had talked about him uh, pre-draft with you as well. Jeff, any final questions for Matt here before we uh, close it out tonight? Yeah, one quick one, because you, you mentioned Kenny Pickett and, um, you know, maybe not even getting on the field quickly. If you hear the camp buzz, right, it's going to be Mitchell Trubisky beating him out for the job. But I guess, um, you know, you know, we've talked about this before, Matt, where, you know, sitting is not the worst thing for a quarterback, no matter how much a fan base clamors for first round picks. But uh, a good conversation we had with Sig the other week was um, about the stability of organizations and, you know, how that helps players grow and and does that factor in at all in your mind you know when you talk about a potentially chaotic Carolina Panthers team and who knows what their future holds versus you know a, a organization like the Steelers who you know just seem year in and year out to be putting together a good product yeah and I think it does it does fall into play um but you also you look at situations and say well Who's going to, you know, where is the quarterback situation or how long has Mike Tomlin been there? How long is he going to be there? You know, is, is, and so you can have questions about those types of things. But at this point, when you're talking about third round quarterbacks versus first round guys, I mean, obviously, you know, Matt Corral is going to have a bigger risk reward factor than Pickett. So it's not even a comparison, I think, with those guys. Now, the team where I think someone could, where that could factor in is a guy that's a favorite of mine is Skylar Thompson, who is had a good camp thus far, or at least has shown up pretty well in mini camp um, with the Miami Dolphins, who reminded me a little bit of a Tony Romo. That's the guy I compared him to um, pre-draft. And, you know, he was drafted in the seventh round. Teddy Bridgewater's, you know, a journeyman. He's a, a journeyman starter who's a veteran who can be helpful. The only guy that this new regime in Miami drafted and the new regime is going to be in place if if Mike McDaniel can show that he's that he can build something from there. We might, you know, this is the that's the type of thing you can factor in because Tua is Tua is an approve it year. This is you know we've given you all the weapons you you could possibly want in the skill positions, and unless the offensive line is so bad that Mike McDaniel can can't can't find a way to blame Tua for that. Um, Tua's got to sink or swim. And if he doesn't, well, the only guy he has might, he might give the, he, if Tua fails drastically by mid season, we might see the Davis Mills treatment out of Skylar Thompson and see what he has. Why not? You know, especially with these young guys now, you know, would Tyree kill fake an injury or, you, you know, you know, have get advice from his his agent on you know faking something or doing something crazy so that he doesn't have to be you know play through all that with a rookie you know i don't know diva wide receivers are interesting that way i don't know if he's a diva but the fact that he's saying that two is a better than patrick mahomes in certain facets of the game uh, you know kind of stinks of of agent speak if you ask me um you know so um you know that might you might not get that full 
you know, you might not get that full bed of uh, surrounding talent for a guy like Thompson in this regard. But I, I think that he's someone that is interesting to watch because he could build with an organization and with a guy who's witnessed undrafted players work out in Mike McDaniel working behind Kyle Shanahan and seeing how that sometimes can and work out well. And, and especially if the guy seems to be a hard worker and is already like working with Dan Marino and, and, and is like, you know, there are guys like Drew Locke who had an opportunity with Peyton Manning early on and just blew it off until his job was threatened. And with Teddy Bridgewater and was like, Oh, now I want to contact Peyton after Peyton said anything you need, you know, Peyton Manning, if I was a young quarterback and Peyton Manning or Dan Marino said anything you need, let me know. And I go, do you have a garage? And he'd say, why? I said, because I will pay rent to live there and work with you whenever you have the opportunity. I just need a mattress and a hot plate and some and and maybe some barbells, you know, and a bench press. You know, that's all I and 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 obviously yeah. a DVD player. Yeah. You know, that's you know, but I figure we'll be watching it with you in your in the living room, I figured <laughs> at that point or wherever you take me. But I just I just need that. I will stay here for the first 2 to 3 years if I need to. I will pay premium rent just to stay in these crappy conditions to do that. And I think Skylar Thompson gets that. There's some guys who didn't, and so that's why that's fascinating to me. Well, you you mentioned the track record of the 49ers UDFA quarterbacks. Nick Mullins uh, got starts over C.J. Beathard, who's you know was their third round pick, and and they did pretty well. And I think you know as you mentioned, Skylar Thompson has I think a much higher base of talent than a guy like uh, Nick Mullins out there. So obviously that was injury, but um, we'll have to really pay attention to. Uh, the, the roster decisions, right? That when they go down to 53, I, what happens, right? Do, do they carry a third? I, I don't see them cutting Teddy Bridgewater, but do I they carry a third either. quarterback, right? That's a good do, question. And San Francisco did that a couple of years ago with Beathard and Mullins. They carried three quarterbacks into the year because they didn't want to get them, let them go. So that'll, that'll give us an indication. Yeah. And with that bad offensive line, they may need it. Yeah. And, and if, the draft tells us anything. Those seventh round picks, when the teams make a, a pick in the seventh round, they are making that pick because they know. I, I think at times they're making that pick because they know that person is going to be a hot commodity as a UDFA, and they are trying to get almost like jump the gun. Because let's be honest, a lot of the sixth and seventh round guys probably are similar in skill and talent in most evaluators eyes as the UDFAs, but they want to get a guy to be like, no, we don't want to fight for him on the UDFA. We don't want our, you know, people, our scouts and stuff calling them saying, we'll offer this signing bonus. We'll offer that. They invested in him. If they try to sneak him on the practice squad, it's almost like opening up that door again, almost like the UDFA period. So I I'm thinking that Miami is probably going to go the free quarterback route because if not, yes, I know a team, if they want to take them, they got to put them on their active roster. But there are there are plenty of teams in the NFL that are more that are open to keeping three quarterbacks. And if he was a guy that maybe they were thinking about, a team was thinking about trying to get him as a UDFA, and he would have been one of those initial phone calls, or maybe he probably spoke to teams and you know during the latter stages of the draft because teams say they start calling guys and be like, if you don't get picked in the seventh round, we're interested. You know, 
I think he's probably going to find his way on the roster. And then once he's there, you know, let's see, let's see how the chips fall there. And like you said, he's the only one attached to this new regime. So in especially new coaching staff. So it's going to be interesting to kind of follow that. Matt, thank you so much uh, for joining us tonight, for, for uh, being willing to go live with us here on YouTube and for people to watch us. Always a pleasure to talk to you. It's, it's always really fun pre-draft post-draft joining you and SIG on draft night. Uh, I always look forward to any opportunity to get a chance to discuss football with you, these prospects. Please, I'm sure all of our audience is following you, but if there's anything you're working on over you know, at the RSP Film Room or at the website or anything else you want to share, uh, please do so uh, right now. Okay, so the biggest thing is that um, this is the second year I'm doing projections, dynasty rankings and projections. For the um, for two year period, you know, for each of those players, so you you it's a year long subscription, but you get like basically a look at this year plus an early look at next year, and I do a a, a win now and a long build ranking that's tiered rankings, um, color coded, much like the RSP post draft, but for all the players, um, and I provide projections sorted by team. It's there's a PDF version of it, but Starting in August, I'm making the Excel sheet available. So if you want the Excel sheet so that you can sort, change things, edit anything you want, that's great. And as as I go with that, I will probably be adding more and more notes to those players individually because I can do that on Excel. And the more people who get the Excel, the less likely I'll do continue doing the PDF because it's just work unnecessary work at that stage. Um, but you can get it for $24.95 at mattwaldman.com. Um, and, you know, the response has been great thus far with it. But, you know, again, it's a fairly new product and, and I've gotten a good response about folks wanting the spreadsheet. So if you've been looking at it and thinking about getting it, but wish it were in that spreadsheet form beginning this week, because I'm going to be um, doing my August update at the end of July, um, at least my first August update, and I'll give a second August update as we get into the meat of training camp um, or just before the season starts. I will, um, you know, I'll have those updated on on spreadsheets from that point on. So you can find it at mattwaldman.com. You can learn more about my work at mattwaldmanrsp.com. I have a TikTok account, so if you're into TikTok and you're interested in that, I'm posting a lot of videos. Um, clips of uh you know clips of podcasts and things like that you can find my podcast at matt waldman's rsp film room and i'm renewing the scout talk episode with um head of u.s scouting for the montreal alouettes um russ landy we're gonna be doing that probably every other week throughout the season and throughout the draft period mark schofield and i will probably be reconvening to do our um our quick game stuff probably every other week this year this year um and you know that's it you know the usual grind in addition to that i think i'm gonna have to download tiktok now (laughs) 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 my wife my wife's on apps i'm gonna have to to see what the buzz is about well jeff if you're going there we're just going to give you the s we're just going to create an ss handle and just have you run it then since we're and maybe we'll have to start expanding (laughs) uh our social probably a mistake paul but (laughs) (laughs) Uh, guys, make sure you're following out, following all of Matt's work, checking out all the stuff, all amazing content, uh, one of the best in the industry. Uh, so go check out all that great work. So on behalf of Matt, on behalf of Jeff, on behalf of our sound tech engineer, David Nakano, and myself, 
Thank you for joining us, and we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.